I had, I had the, the, uh, the privilege of joining in the Passover meal with a Jewish family. I don't know, 2001 or 2000, something. It's lost the mists of time. I was living with a family who the, the mother was the daughter of Jewish people, so they were uh, nom- nominally Jewish. And so every second year, they would gather with the entire extended family to celebrate the Passover. I was living with them, so I had to go along. It was, it was a fascinating affair. I, I kind of, I wish I could do it again with who I am now, just to watch and learn and pay attention, because at that point in time, I wasn't paying a whole lot of attention. But it was um, just about everything you'd expect, as we're going to see in a moment, right? There was the roast lamb, there was the, the unleavened bread, the sour herbs, uh, although I'm pretty sure that that's just to bully. But anyway, that, that was what it was. But, it, but it, was, it was fascinating reflecting on it now and thinking back to it as the sort of meal that it was in comparison to what we're going to see today in Exodus 11 to 13. Because it really was just a feast. It, it, it was, we're having an opportunity, it's an opportunity for us just to get together as a family and lay it on. There certainly wasn't this sense of a rushed, minimalistic meal. It had the sense of days and days and days of preparation and cooking. Uh, these very kind of secular Jews, I guess you'd say, they're Jewish uh, in name, if not necessarily religion. But even for them, there was still, uh, I remember there was a competition at one point as to who could read the Hebrew Scripture better. So they bust out some of the Old Testament stuff and started reading it. None of them understood it. Right? Not, not one of them knew a word of what they were reading, but, they, but they, every year they had this competition to just read it out loud. Um, the, the kids just put up with it. I mean, they were kind of, you know, I guess we have to sit through this thing. But there certainly wasn't a sense of worship of the living God. That this was something that marked, that defined their relationship between who they were as Jews and who their God was and what, it, who, what he had done for them. And it, it left, it's kind of left pondering the Passover this week. It left me with a question, well, what does the Passover mean for us? Is, is it the same thing? Is it just an old and antiquated story from history? It's interesting in the details, we'll see them in a minute, but what does it mean? I want to suggest to you tonight that far from being something uh, that's, that's a bit kind of old and just a story out of the cl- classic Sunday school story, actually this is deeply, deeply important for Christians. As God's salvation in the Passover and then in the rest of the Exodus is going to teach us some absolutely fundamental truths about Jesus. A lot of the things that we understand about Jesus begin here. And so, for example, when John the Baptist sees Jesus walking on the scene and he says, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And you think, well, hang on, what does that sentence mean? <laughs> Here is the Lamb of God who takes it. Like, why does God have lambs? <laughs> What's this one got to do with it? Is it a big lamb, little lamb? Is it a golden fleeced lamb? Like, what, what, how does it take away the sin of the world? Lambs are little creatures. How is it going to do it? Well, actually, it begins here. So why don't I pray, and then uh, we'll, we'll get into exploring. Our Heavenly Father, we ask as we reflect tonight on, on this tenth plague, and the Passover that you brought in salvation. We ask that you would help us to take to heart the salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ, to learn not just the history of Israel, but then the saving work of Jesus, that we might live lives of celebration and commemoration. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Now, we're covering basically three chapters tonight, uh, and as we said, we're kind of not going to read through all of it because there's a lot in there. So what I want to do is, I want to just briefly tell you the story. We're going to hit the high points through these two chapters, three chapters, 11, 12, 13, and then I'm going to come back and I want to show you five parallels between the Passover and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the story, come back to chapter 11, uh, and, and we'll read just a couple of verses. Moses is before Pharaoh. You remember so far, we've had the nine plagues as God is trying to free his people. And every plague that comes, Moses kind of goes, oh yeah, maybe, I guess. And then the plague leaves and, and Pharaoh's heart is hardened. Remember, we saw that last week under the sovereign plan of God. And so one more plague is still to come that Egypt and in fact, the whole world might know the Lord. So the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go. When he lets you go, he will drive you out of here. So announce to the people, they should ask their neighbours for silver and gold items. The Lord gave the people favour. So, come down to verse 4, Moses comes to Pharaoh and said, this is what the Lord says, about midnight, I will go through Egypt and every firstborn male in the land of Egypt will die. Right, so the story begins slightly different to the other nine plagues because this time Pharaoh has been warned. You remember the other nine, right? Moses came and found Pharaoh as he was walking by the river's edge and said, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no, and Moses says, well, in that case, bad things are going to happen to you, right? That's what happened every time. This time there's a warning, death is coming. But it's not death for everybody as it turns out. Because in the midst of this great cry of anguish across all of Egypt, look at verse 7, against the Israelites, not even a dog will snarl. They won't be touched. The reason that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. I mean, here's the plan of God, right? To show who He is. This plague will come, the Egyptians will face death, and my people will go. But again, verse 9, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Even the warning of death was not enough. And so then the story kind of pauses. We've had lots of interaction with Moses, uh, sorry, with Pharaoh, and God speaks to Moses. And chapter 12 really is setting up the Passover. See, in the midst of the condemnation and the judgment that fell upon Egypt, God provided a substitute. He gave a way out for His people. He provided a lamb to be killed instead. Right, so all of chapter 12, what we had read for us, those instructions, go and find the perfect unblemished lamb, kill it, eat it, burn whatever's left, paint the doorpost with blood and wait. Such that in verse 13 of chapter 12, the blood on the houses will be a distinguishing mark. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will be among you. And so, come down to verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck every firstborn male in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon. And every firstborn of the livestock. It happened as God said. The wailing picks up, the, the Israelites ask the Egyptians to give them all their gold, and they do, and so Egypt gets plundered of their economic resources in the midst of it all. 
Pharaoh comes to Moses and pleads, go, leave, get out of here before we all die. And so God's people are free. And so we come to chapter 13 then, and as they leave, listen to what the Lord says, 13 and verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses, consecrate every firstborn male to me, they are mine. You see, this picture of having been bought from the dead to new life now means that the firstborn belong to God. And then in chapter 3 and verse 14, we read that this is to be remembered in the future. In the future, when your son asks you, what does this mean? Say to him, by the strength of his hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. When Pharaoh refused to let us go, the Lord killed every firstborn male. That is why I sacrifice to the Lord all the firstborn of the womb that are males, but I redeem the firstborn of my sons. So let it be a sign to you. There you go, there's the tenth plague and there's the Passover. Death struck Egypt. The Lord passed over His people and saved them. Now, I want to draw out five very direct parallels from this story that kind of point straight into the New Testament. They're not necessarily um, direct allusions, but what begins here is something that carries through the Bible such that when Jesus arrives on the scene, so many of the categories that we use to understand Jesus start in the Passover. So here they are, here's the five parallels. And the first is a warning of judgment. A warning of judgment. If you want to understand the ministry of Jesus, you have to understand that God has provided a warning against sin. Now again, this plague is a little bit different, right? When, when Moses came to Pharaoh and told him this is about to happen. I wonder what Pharaoh thought at that point in time. All nine other plagues had happened, right? If Moses has said it's coming, odds are it's coming. I don't know what crossed his mind. Is he just so obstinate at that point? But what happens is, well really this tenth plague is a direct consequence of Pharaoh's stubborn heart. God said to Pharaoh, because you will not listen to my word, condemnation will fall. What do you think of, what do you feel when you hear a passage like this, that God killed the children of Egypt? It's hard to hear, isn't it? it, it it's one of those kind of passages that... that people will use to say, well, look, see, the, the God of the Old Testament's a monster. I mean, he, going around killing children, the firstborn, I think we have this picture in our minds of, of the beautiful, innocent little ones. How could God do that to them? All the pets, think of all the pets God killed, the firstborn of the domestic animals, all the cute little kitties. How could he? And perhaps even we're more outraged by the pets than the children. I've been wondering, pondering about this. Why is it that we find this word hard? Why is it so confronting? Why does it outrage us to think of God having done that? I can't help but feel that perhaps our moral sensitivity has been blunted. We, we, we don't quite see things rightly. We, we had a conversation this week in our Bible study group. Well, sorry, it was last week. It didn't go this week, last week. About whether it was okay to tell other people about their sin or not. Whether we should even care or just leave them in their sin. I mean, do you, do you get outraged 
as you walk down the street and you see a whole group of people who are utterly ignorant, if not rebellious of God? Do you, do you get outraged at seeing the temples to the false gods and at, at thinking of a humanity that's in rebellion against... I, I don't. Why not? Why, why don't we walk down the street looking at people and thinking, why are you rebelling against your Maker? I mean, well, they're not Christians, we say, so we shouldn't hold them to our standards. Why does that matter? Are they not creatures of the ever-living God who owe Him all the honour and all the glory? And in their sin, their rebellion against Him are an affront to His holiness. The thing that ought to outrage us about Egypt, if anything, was that God didn't wipe them out sooner. This is the mercy of God that He held off for so long. Men and women and even children in open rebellion against the Maker. I think in the end we often fail to see the true horror of sin. Look, I wonder if it's because we're a little bit habituated. We're just so used to seeing sin that it kind of becomes a, ah, well, it's not a big deal. I'll tell you what, my greatest fear is that perhaps even we've become compromised ourselves. And we're so much like the world that if we were to condemn the world, we ourselves would be condemned. The Bible inexorably links sin and death. Always. It links them in a way that just one follows the other. The judgment of God is righteous. You want to understand Jesus, it begins here. God in His kindness warns but there is judgment for sin. Listen to what Jesus said, right? If, if, you, um, if you think that kind of Old Testament God bad, New Testament God nice and happy and lovey, well, actually, Jesus, Luke chapter 13, he's talking to this group of people who've gathered, and they, 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 they were talking about a, a tower fell on a bunch of people, right? Terrible, terrible events. And they're looking at those people, and they say, well, they must have been dirty, rotten sinners, mustn't they? I mean, whew, they must have been the worst to die like that. And Jesus looks at them and says, what are you talking about? I tell you the truth, unless you too repent, you likewise will perish. Jesus wasn't going to hold back. Or in Romans 6, the Apostle says, the wages of sin, what you are owed for sin, what you are due for your sin is death. Pharaoh was warned and he didn't heed the warning. We have been warned. <laughs> the warning of judgment still rings out today. Ignore God's word at your own peril. Don't repeat his folly. But that warning of judgment is kind of the black backdrop to all the good stuff that comes next. See, the second parallel I want to show you is the provision of a substitute. The provision of a substitute. You see, God had said to Pharaoh, all the firstborn of Egypt are going to die. Actually, it's all the firstborn in Egypt are going to die. Isn't that strange? So what about the firstborn of Israel? I mean, by rights, they should die too. They're in Egypt. They're a bunch of sinners too. God, in His kindness provided a way of escape, a substitute, right? Choose the perfect lamb, kill it, eat it, 
paint the doorpost with his blood and trust me that that will be enough. I can you imagine that moment? What a, what a weird kind of thing to put your trust in. There's an angel of death about to arrive who is going to just wipe through Egypt and kill every single firstborn and I want you to trust on a bit of red paint on your doorpost. <laughs> I mean, you know the scene, right? Angel of death, it's like midnight, poof, angel of death arrives. Where are the people? <laughs> I come, I bring death. <laughs> Walks up to your door and you're like... Oh, this door's red. Never mind, guys. Bye. Right? And I'll be, like, what? How is this supposed to save you? Which is an act of faith, isn't it? It's trusting God's substitute. It's trusting God's provision that it will be enough. That it will save. That the blood that was spilt was sufficient. Now, can you notice that the Savior and the Destroyer in this chapter is the same person? The, the, the one who issued the warning is the same one who provided the substitute. The angel of death who comes through in destruction is the same angel who passes over in salvation. It's the same God. There's a bit of a trend among some so-called Christian leaders, I use so-called very intentionally, in, in doing away with this idea of the wrath of God for sin. Instead, they say, what Jesus saves us from is the consequences of our sin. He saves us from the bad things that come as a result of us being sinners. It might sound kind of the same, but they're very different. God is love, they say. He's not angry at sin. It's just bad stuff happens because we sin, and so Jesus comes and makes life good. You usually end up in the prosperity gospel if you go down that line far enough. You see, when, when we're talking about salvation, let's be very clear, we're talking about deliverance from God's own judgment. We're talking about salvation from His wrath. It's God's own mercy that saves us from God's own condemnation of us. Penal substitutionary atonement is the, the, the big words, right? That Jesus, the substitute, pays the penalty that we owe to make us right with God again. He is our substitute. To propitiate, there's another big word, to turn aside wrath. What we deserve, He died. Let me show you a couple of verses in the New Testament that pick up that idea. 1 Peter 3.18, for example, right? Anyone who's done two ways to live, who can do it without looking at the screen? Oh, too late, you've all looked already. Right? Christ suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. Or, uh, or earlier in 1 Peter, in chapter 1, he puts it this way, with, with very Passover language, you were redeemed, you were bought, with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. Jesus died in our place. Let's be very clear about this, this is a very important point. Jesus wasn't some innocent third party, Jesus wasn't some random passerby that God went, oh, you know what, I'm going to punish him instead of you. Ha ha, off you go, happy days. If, if, if you belong to a church or you've kind of got friends who, who are one of those groups that teach that Jesus isn't God, then you've got a real problem. In fact, if Jesus isn't God, 
then God really is a monster. Because he's, you know, he's, he's just going to punish innocent people. It doesn't work that way. No, Jesus is God himself who is our substitute. It's even greater than the lambs of Egypt. It's not some other animal who dies. It's God himself sacrificing for us in his own son, the Lord Jesus. Right, so parallel number one, the warning of judgment. Parallel number two, the provision of a substitute. Parallel number three is the promise of freedom and redemption. You know, it would have been enough if God's substitute just saved us from the bad things. That alone would have been enough. Someone offers to pay a fine for you, brilliant, right? Thanks. That'll do. It doesn't need to be more than that. That's good. If Jesus had died so that we didn't face God's anger, fantastic. And yet in the Passover, we see that there's even more to it than that. There's promise of freedom, a better future. For, for Israel, it happened quite directly, right? I mean, it was immediate. Tomorrow, you will be free. That's a pretty good promise, isn't it? Tonight, we eat lamb. Tomorrow, we're no longer slaves. By morning, you'll be gone. I mean, that must have been such a weird night. So strange. Begins at twilight with killing, I don't know how many lambs it takes to feed a million people, right? That's a lot of lamb. And then they've got to stuff themselves full, eating this quick meal, unleavened bread, with everything that you own, packed and ready to go. Around about midnight, you start to hear the whales just floating in from the distance as Egypt wakes up to what's happened. I take it at that point, you know, tomorrow is not going to be the same. Either they're going to come and wipe us out, or we're leaving. The day breaks and Egypt is free. What a moment. Redeemed, bought, purchased, freed. Now God's people, in truth. The nation, no longer just a family. So momentous, did you notice, that their, their whole year, their calendar begins again in the start of chapter 12. Right? This month is to be the beginning of months for you, the first month of your year. Right? Your, their calendar reset at that point. It was such a momentous occasion. I, I believe it's still the case today, right? They're in year 4,302 or whatever it is since that moment. What an astonishing thing. Now, of course, in the Lord Jesus, it's just the same, isn't it? It wasn't just saved from death, but it's saved from slavery. Now, not slavery to Egypt. None of us are um, currently bonded servants in the nation of Egypt. We, we have a different kind of slavery. Go read Romans 6, where it outlines that the slavery we have is a bondage to sin. And that is what we have been freed from. Interestingly, such a momentous occasion for us that we also reset our calendar. There's no this common, none of this common era business, right? It drives me nuts when people, B-C-E and C-E. It's like, common, common what? What do we have? We don't have anything in common. No, this is the year of our Lord. Such a defining moment. Our identity is grounded in the Lord Jesus Christ, just as it was for Israel. Redeemed to be free. And so, fourth parallel then, we have been purchased. And so we belong to God. Or the word that he uses is consecrated. Right in chapter 13, verse 1, as we said, the Lord spoke to Moses, consecrate every firstborn male to me. The word consecrate, it just set it aside, they're mine. That's what it means. 
set them aside for me. Which makes sense, doesn't it? The lives of the firstborn of the Israelites were just as forfeit as the lives of the Egyptians. I mean, the nation of Israel was just as sinful. They, they weren't any more holy. In fact, I'd even argue that they were worse because they knew God and were still worshipping idols. Egypt, you could at least maybe say, well, perhaps they were ignorant, right? There's some sort of excuse you could make. Whereas Israel knew better and they were sinners. The firstborn of Israel were just as forfeit as the lives of Egypt, but God bought them. He paid for their death. In chapter 19, God will speak the same way of the whole nation of Israel. Not just the firstborn, but all of you have been redeemed by me. And so, of course, the lives of the Israelites are now His, right? If you've been bought from the dead, the life you live is now His. Redemption from death brings consecration to God. Once again, true in Christ. If you owe your life to God's substitute, then you have been consecrated. It's a very religious sounding word, isn't it? The pictures of pouring oil on people's heads. Maybe we should have done that tonight. That would have been fun. Anyway, let's not. Uh, actually, one of my kids did that this week. Lamb grease all through her hair. Anyway, consecrated. Good on her. Let me show you Romans 6.13. As those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons of righteousness. I love that phrase. Weapons of righteousness. Well, you get the point. You were dead and now you have been purchased by God back to life. You are His to live His way. Let me ask you this. What are you doing with your life? If I were to ask you that question after church tonight, what are you doing with your life? Do you know what I hope the answer would be? David, that sentence doesn't make sense. That question doesn't make sense. Because it's not my life. I'm not doing anything with my life, it's not mine. It belongs to Him who died and was raised for me. What am I doing? Well, I'm doing what He wants with my life because it's His, not mine. I'm doing what He wants with His life. It's inconceivable that we might live unto ourselves. Right, 2 Corinthians 5, he puts it this way, Jesus died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. Remember, do you think of yourself that way? That you have been consecrated, purchased out of death into life? Do you wake up each morning? Well, God, what do you want today? Do you, do you plan and think and listen and reflect upon what is it that God wants out of your life? It's easy, isn't it, to just get into the railroad tracks and just, whoo, this is what I want, my goals, my ambitions, my dreams, my desires, the things that I've worked hard for and that I now want to achieve. It's very easy. It's the constant pull of our sinful selves, of the idol that we are. It's constant. And so it requires us all the more to be conscious that our lives are not our own, but His. In the biggest picture, when did you last sit down and just do an exercise of going, what is God doing in the world? And what is God calling me to do in His world? When was the last time you did that? 
When was the last time you looked at your week and you said, how are the things that I do in my week flow from that, from the thing that God is doing and that He wants me to do? Or am I just off chasing butterflies? The fourth parallel, we've been purchased and so we belong to God, consecrated. Now, if you want more, I mean, that, that's a big question, isn't it? That, that's all of life stuff. If you want to stop and think practically and directly about that question, make sure you come to the Big Day in on Saturday. We're going to spend a chunk of our time thinking about, concretely, individually and together, how do we live to the glory of God? All right? Uh, shameless plug, make sure you're there. Right, fifth one. Here we go, fifth parallel. Commemoration and celebration. Right, this day is to be a memorial. You must celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. Celebrate it throughout your generations as a permanent statue. Not just a feast, not just a party. I mean, that, that dinner with, with those friends of mine, that really was just a family party. I mean, there was so little in it by way of genuine remembrance. But we are to remember. Our identity... I mean, we, we live in the era of identity politics, right? These days, who you are trumps everything else. Well, who we are is found at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who we are is found in our Passover lamb. Well, it was wonderful to have James read for us that account at the Last Supper as Jesus opens up the Passover and reinterprets it to say, you have a new celebration. The Passover is no longer your defining moment, this is. That's a bit different, isn't it? The Lord's Supper and the Passover, I mean, we, we don't have lamb. It's a bit of a shame, really. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of in for getting the roast lamb going with anyone. Like, can you imagine the kebab spinning out there as we're kind of like, oh, man. One cube only. Ah. <laughs> oh. We don't have many lambs. The thing is, our lamb has been slain already. The point of eating the lamb was the killing of the lamb. Ours is done. We don't have to eat it. We don't do the whole unleavened bread, eat in a rush, right? Tomorrow you go. It's not just for one nation, but for all the world. And yet it is still that joyful, wonderful celebration, the moment to stop and remember the Lord has saved you with an outstretched arm and a mighty hand. He has redeemed you out of slavery. He has sacrificed a substitute for your death. That mighty historical deliverance. I, I hope that communion, when we do it, like, what do we do it? Once a month. So, you know, I mean, we've done it two weeks in a row now just because it felt so appropriate to tonight. But I, I hope you don't get to the point where you just take it for granted. Why is this? weird, slightly strange meal that we have that's not really a meal because you're still hungry afterwards and it's kind of this stale bread for you guys because it's been there all day and, and the cordial and you're like, well, how, how's the mix going to be today? It's going to be a strong one or a weak one, right? And, and it just becomes a bit of a nothing sort of a... I hope that doesn't happen. It's nice to gather, right? It's good to be family and what we are doing in that moment is that little token, that little moment to stop and celebrate the joy that we have as Christians, that the Lord Jesus is our Passover lamb. That He truly is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, I'll tell you, these, these aren't forced parallels, right? We, we, we can trace them through the Bible. The, the warning of judgment is not a temporal one. We don't have the fear that our children will die tonight. It's an eternal warning. 
don't ignore God's Word. The provision of a substitute, not many lambs, but the one who died for sin. The promise of freedom, not out of slavery in Egypt, but out of bondage to sin. The consequence that we have now been consecrated to God. Our lives individually and together no longer are ours. Not one geographic nation, but all peoples and all tribes and all tongues and all languages gathered together before the throne. And so how can we not celebrate? How can our lives not be lives of joy? This isn't a burden. It's not a burden to, to, to go back to God's ways. Say, oh, I guess I'm God's slave now. I'm his bond servant. This is rubbish. It's delightful. We're going back to, the, it's OG purpose, right? We're going back to the meaning of life. We're once again finding who we are meant to be and we're created for. It's wonderful. And so the celebration that will last for eternity begins now. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, we thank and praise you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ, our Passover Lamb that you would sacrifice yourself in our place. Our Father, you are so kind that even in the midst of your judgment to come, you have provided what we need. And so, Father, make us yours by your Son and fill us with all peace and joy in believing that we would live lives knowing we are yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, before we sing, I'm uh, going to give you a minute again, like we did last week, to reflect what's your key takeaway. What's one thing that you're going to walk out of tonight with God's Word in your mind, in your heart. A challenge, something you've learned, a rebuke, an action you need to take, something you need to pray about. Give you a minute to do that. And can I encourage you, it's really helpful to write it down. It just helps make it concrete. Something that you find it easier to share with others later on. And then we'll sing.